following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. We're going to continue our, our study in the book of Psalms. If you have your Bible, please open to Psalm 18. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of the ones on your seat or the seat next to you, and you can keep that as our gift to you. We're going to be in Psalm 18. The Psalms generally somewhere near the middle of your Bible. The large numbers on the page are the chapter numbers. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We're going to read all of Psalm 18 and study all of Psalm 18 together. And since it's long, I will do my best to, uh, to keep the pace at a uh, steady manner. We have 50 verses to cover. Before we begin, let's pray and ask God for help and for illumination. Father, we ask now that as we come to study your word, that our hearts would be quieted and our minds would be stilled as we open our eyes and ears to the teaching and the proclamation of your word. May we see in it the clear gospel, unadorned by pretense, but pure and beautiful in its own And would it strike us to the very core of our hearts so that we would respond in true and genuine praise? Would this psalm be one that we read and turn to time and time again, full of wisdom and truth and help in our times of need? Lord, this is not a small task we undertake, and so we pray and ask for your spirit to help and guide us in the understanding of your word, guiding me in the preaching of your word, to illuminate our minds in the receiving of this word, and embolden and encourage and equip us in the obedience of your word. And Lord, may our lives then, as a result, be champions of your word. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. If you knew that whatever you decided to do at any given day, however difficult or dangerous it may be, that you would be safe and free from harm, how would you live your life? No sickness, no disease, no broken bones, no defeat, no death. You could go and do free from danger. How would your life be different if you had that kind of promise? If you had real and true invincibility? Somehow you knew that you could take a step off the path of safety and hesitation onto the dangerous road of risk and know that it will pay off. Know that you will be kept from harm. I think all of us would, from time to time, enjoy such invincibility. We would certainly do things that normally, and for good reason, we would abstain from doing. We know that we would be free from death and threat of destruction. We would not perish, for instance, in stepping out in faith and in boldness to preach the gospel, to move to a closed country, to be bold, but perhaps even take more steps and our own selfish desires. Certainly many people today believe they have such invincibility, but we would be wise to remind ourselves that none here is invincible, that all life is like grass that would fade. But there's a confidence that the Bible drives home in the Christian's heart that in one sense does enable us to take steps of faith and risk, even when it's difficult and even into dangerous places. We can embrace the risk and the danger of our lives and even in certain situations, confident that we will not be defeated at the end. Now, we are not free from the threat of danger, nor would we be free from pain or difficulty. And our lives themselves may even be taken in the steps of faith. But at the end of the day and at the end of our lives, we will still have the fullness of confidence that we cannot truly meet death in its final way. Because as Christians, we proclaim that death has been defeated. 
that death has met its own death in Christ. And so for Christians who trust in the work and the person of Christ, there is no real sting of the grave. Well, Psalm 18 really is a picture of that kind of confidence. Though David did not know Christ as Jesus, the Son of God, we see in this psalm he looks very much forward to a king that would come and lay seeds to all of David's enemies. David himself will enjoy prosperity and deliverance from his enemies at the hand of God. But he looks forward and anticipates that day when all of God's people will walk in full faith and confidence that their enemies have been defeated. Let me give you two illustrations, I think, from the text that will illuminate this idea. First, we see, is one of a castle or of a fortress. Here, just in the beginning of verses 1 and 2, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Think of a castle or a fortress, perhaps in medieval times, often with high walls that are meant to be impenetrable by the opposing army or nations that would come to lay siege to that land. They've got turrets around the corners so that archers could go, protected by the shields of their own, walls and lay seeds to those who would come against them. They have large gates that would be drawn up to prevent any from coming inside. Indeed, even by force, breaking into such strongholds would be difficult. And it's inside of such a fortress or a castle that you would be safe from the enemy. A fortress well-built, well-guarded, and well-maintained could withstand attack from the enemy almost indefinitely. If behind the walls of such a fortress, you have everything you need to survive, food to grow and to nourish, weapons in a way to make more, really life sustained, safety, survival. Well, that's one image we see clearly there from the text. Another is more personal. And if you're a parent, I think this will ring true. There are times in a parent's life where we have to encourage our children to be brave, to take steps of courage that they're just naturally inclined not to take. This begins very early on when we have just small little children who are beginning to take their first steps, and we're coaxing them, perhaps with a little toy or a treat or a keychain, as in the case of my own kids, to take that first step. Or as they get older, and you begin to put them to bed, and they express a hesitation and a a fear of being left alone in the dark. You encourage them that they're safe and they're okay. Or because it's summer, you're in the pool, and you're teaching your children how to swim or to jump off the diving board. You're there ready to catch, ready to hold, and you're encouraging them. Jump, I have you. I'll get you. I won't let anything happen to you. Well, the illustrations there are endless, but the refrain is the same. They can lay their head on their pillow at night, fears and concerns stayed because their father is in the next room caring for them. Just like the walls of a castle and the father of children, God here is presented as a help and a refuge and a fortress in time of great need and distress. This is what David meditates on as he he looks back at his own life and how God has delivered him. He sees very clearly that God has delivered him from the hands of his enemy, not by simply defeating their enemies, but rather by being a fortress and a refuge for David himself and for all of God's people. That the promise of a relationship with God is much more than just the prosperity of victory over enemies, though that is definitely assured but it's the refuge, the safety, and the comfort you can take in God as your refuge, as your rock and fortress and deliverer. This is the main theme of Psalm 18, as we'll read in a moment. It's the theme of deliverance. And here David meditates on the promises of God to him as a servant of the Lord. There in verse 1, 
or in the title before verse 1. This is a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when he was delivered, when he delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. David, who is the servant of the Lord, he meditates on the promises of God given to him. And as he does this, he's envisioning and anticipating the future righteous king in whom all of these promises and all the pictures of deliverance ultimately come to fruition. In fact, it's necessary to say at the beginning, Psalm 18 is one of those psalms that make the most sense coming out of the mouth of Christ than out of David. David surely wrote these songs and could sing and pray this psalm, but it is in the mouth of Jesus that Psalm 18 really finds its fulfillment. So as we study this morning, know that Jesus Christ is the one who fully anticipates and fulfills this language. But here David meditates on God's faithfulness and his promises to his servant, and he's envisioning and he's anticipating the day when the Son of God, that future righteous king, would come. We're going to take our psalm really in four distinct parts. First, we consider David's distress in verses 1 through 5. And then Yahweh's deliverance in verses 6 through 19. Third, we'll examine the Lord's delight in verses 20 through 29. And then the last, verses 30 through 50, is come to see the enemy's destruction. First, consider David's distress. Note here the metaphorical language we see that David prays here. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of shale entangled me, and the snares of death confronted me. The language he chooses to use here is of strength and fortitude. He calls God his rock and his fortress, his, his shield, a defense and a deliverer against his enemies. From which we are to note really two important things about the character and strength of God. First, it is the omnipotence of God. His strength, unmatched and unrivaled among all. God is, as the theologians would call it, omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, that his strength is inexhaustible and unmatched. There is none greater in scope of power or strength or might. God is above all. There is none like him, as he says. God is strong. He is omnipotent. But really the point of the psalm is not simply to acknowledge the omnipotence of God, but to celebrate the advantage of that omnipotence for God's people. We are right to dwell and meditate and celebrate the strength of God, but we also must take hold of the advantage of God in his strength. God's omnipotence here in the psalm is leveraged for his people against his enemies, do you see? that he takes refuge in the strength of God so that he is protected from his enemies. He does not rely on his own strength or the might and the prowess of his own army, but turns to the safety, the refuge, and the strength of God for his deliverance. As the cords of death encompass, the torrents of destruction assail, the cords of shield entangle, and the snares of death confront him, he turns to the strongest person he knows. This is David who had defeated Goliath. David who in all the land has surpassed even Saul in his mighty works. But this is David who clings to the Lord, who follows hard after God and who trusts not in his own strength but in the omnipotent almighty strength of God. And he leverages that strength for his own good. 
This isn't selfish or taking advantage of God in any negative or sinful way. This is actually taking hold of what God offers to his people through covenant. When God is our God and we are God's people, all the strength, all the fortitude, all of the power of God is to serve the good of his people. To be sure, the end of all such work is to glorify God. But the way in which God is glorified is in the safety, happiness, comfort, and joy of his people who take hold of such powerful works of God's hands, who lean on God's sovereignty and omnipotence for their good, even if the circumstances seem at the moment to contradict it. So he says in verse 1, I love you, O God my strength. He is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. So this language here is really to to buttress David's faith that whoever tries to come against him ultimately must meet the hand of God and against such they will not prevail. That is the strength of God and the strength of God leveraged for his people. The steadfast love of God that David has for him is to him a harbor of refuge and it is so for God's people that God's strength becomes a source of comfort for God's people who are in distress for the child who cannot carry the heavy burden looks to their father or mother who can just as we look to others to care for us in ways that we cannot provide for ourselves, we too must ultimately look to God, who alone has the strength to carry our burdens, which we are not able to carry ourselves. Our distresses and the challenges our enemies face against us are no match for the power and the omnipotence of God. That is what we take refuge in. Just as others rely on the strength of powerful allies to take cover behind fortified walls, David's refugee says, is the Lord. He's the Lord himself. Now to be sure, David made use of his army. He would go and make conquests. He wielded the mighty sword against his enemies. But his confidence was not ultimately in those things alone. It was in the Lord. The Lord is my rock, my refuge, my strength. In verse 1, David's love turns to praise in verse 3. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. He celebrates the strength and the unending resilience of God on behalf of his people. That love turns to praise. And friends, this is a reminder to us that true adoration flows from true affection. If we are to truly praise and adore God and offer worship to him, it must first come from a place of genuine love. True adoration flows from true affection. We will only worship what we truly love, what we truly trust in, and what we hold most dear. If you do not love God, you cannot worship him. Above all earthly supports and strongholds, David here loved and trusted in God. And so in the distress, he cries out to him whom he loves, who is able to offer help. He comes to God as a refuge from his distress. Now we know from the title here that the enemies David faced were powerful human enemies like Saul and other nations. But look closely at verse 4 and 5 again. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of shield entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. The challenge he poses is not from Saul but here from spiritual forces opposed to God and God's people. David is personifying the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that are at work behind the human entities and the enemies, like Saul and these other nations that would come against him. David rightly recognized At the end of the day, as Paul picks up in Ephesians 6, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers of darkness that are at work in this world. We may not be able to see visibly the work of destruction that is sown by the enemies of God, but we can be assured that that work is taking place. 
The Bible is very clear on the spiritual realm behind everything we see. That there is nothing spiritually neutral. That there are antagonists at work against the church, against Christ, and against his bride. So David here is rightly personifying the spiritual forces that are at work against him. And friends, it's important for us to recognize that the battle we're facing is spiritual and not just physical. David's attention turns from the actual war that may be waging around him or from the actual physical human enemies that seek his life. And he's saying, it is, it is the enemy of death that is trying to encompass me. It is Sheol that desires to entangle and ensnare me. When we recognize that the spiritual battle is the war that wages around us. We then are reminded that it is not to our own strength must we turn, the strength of bone and flesh and blood, but it is then to God. The Lord alone is able to loose the cords of death and shield, to overpower those torrents and snares of the great enemy. David recognizes that such enemies can only be defeated by God, his strength, turning to God as a refuge is a reminder that your humanity has limits. Your body and your blood and your bones cannot defeat in their own strength the great forces of evil that are at work against you, against Christ and his church. The necessary action then is to not depend on our own strength, but to lean upon the Lord's, to trust as a refuge against the torment of the enemy that God himself will act, that his power is sufficient. David's distress then gives way to Yahweh's deliverance in the next several verses, verses 6 through 19. He says, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also, the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering and his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds, and the Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. When the channels of the sea were seen, then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world would lay bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. David is calling upon the Lord there in verse 6. And the Lord hears him. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. Notice again the relational nature of David's prayer to God. He says, I called upon the Lord, that's the covenant name of God, Yahweh, and cried to my God for help. So the relational nature there is that God is David's covenant-keeping God. This covenant name of God that David evokes in his prayer and it is upon the covenant promises that he petitions God for help. Lord, you have made a covenant with, with your people. You've made a covenant with me. And it's on the basis of the covenant promises that you've made and the faithfulness as a covenant keeper that you are that I pray this prayer. Lord, help me. I cry to you for help. And the Lord answers. The Lord heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Friends, God hears prayer. That's a, a fact of the Bible. He hear, hears prayers. Now there may be sin and reasons that God's hearing of our prayer may go unanswered or hindered. But God is a, he, a prayer hearing God. 
and he delights to answer the prayer of the righteous. He turns and inclines his ears to those who cry upon him in their times of distress, who call on his name, who trust and lean and depend on the promises he's made to him, them in his word. He delights in the fulfillment of his promises. And so when we pray to God, as we must, we must pray to God in the relational knowledge that we have him as a friend and not a foe. And we may call upon the promises he's made to his people through the covenant he's made with us in Christ and ask God, fulfill your promises to me now. Remind me again that you are faithful to your word in all things. As David calls upon the Lord who would hear him, so we must call and cry out to God in our own distresses. Too often, it is only when we are on our last nerve or our last rope will we go to God in prayer. And even then, it's offered frustratingly, begrudgingly. God, you should have helped me by now, but please, Lord, help me. But David here calls in his distress. He has praised God, and he calls to God. And his God hears him. And then in verse 7 through 19, the scene which follows really describes how God rescues David from his enemies. But the language here is, again, framed by that same covenant which, which David calls upon. It's framed by the covenant reality that, that has bound God to his covenant people, his promises, which unite and bind God to his people through covenant. And so we might expect for David to say that God delivered him from his enemy of Saul or did this or that or defeated the Philistines here. But the language is really one of the apocalypse. It's apocalyptic language. It's one of God's judgment of cloud and smoke and fire and trembling. And he refers not simply to human institutions or human enemies, but to God's work and judgment upon the world and the evil forces that had initially surrounded him. There in verse 4 and 5. It's describing how God rescues David from his enemies, framed by the covenant reality that binds God to his covenant people. And so you see there in verse 7, the imagery of an earthquake, or of smoke in verse 8, or dark clouds in verse 9. In verses 13 and 14, the, the presence of thunder and lightning, or even in verse 15, this great wind and rain. This is judgment, righteous indignation against the enemies of God. These are all evocative images of the encounter with God, which are reminiscent of Mount Sinai, when Israel was led by Moses out of Egypt over the Red Sea. Again, an image which is referred to here in verse 16, drawing us out of many waters. That the Lord appears to his people and to Moses on Mount Sinai as he gives the law and makes a covenant with his people that God himself visited, and the earth would quake, and there was fire, and there was cloud, and there was thunder, all of which realistically terrified the Israel people. But David, he picks up on the same imagery and says, just as God intervened then, so he intervenes now, even against his own enemies. And so what David sees in the Lord's deliverance from the hands of Saul and his enemies is in reality, get this, is in reality a covenant-affirming act taken by God to ensure the full redemption and the rescue of God's people. That's the imagery that's drawing up. Just as God entered into a covenant with God's people there at Mount Sinai with Moses, David's drawing on that same truth, that God has entered into a covenant with him and his people. A covenant-affirming act taken by God in the working and the redeeming and the rescuing and the delivering of his people from his enemies. So here David really presents himself as a kind of new Moses with whom God would make a covenant to establish this perfect and unending kingdom among his people, this kingdom which all of God's people will be brought in to enjoy and love and live forever. David reminds himself of the covenant God made with him of such a kingdom. He reminds his readers that God has done this with Moses and he has done it with David. And God's deliverance ultimately amounts to, there in verse 9, placing David in what he calls a broad place. Verse 19, rather. 
He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. This broad place there in verse 19, it's a safe, it's a stable environment where God's blessing will be inherited, enjoyed without threat of death or war. This is the refuge and the kingdom that God establishes and brings to his people. Well, the truth for us to remember is that God's deliverance always results in peace. This is what God works in the world through the refuge he offers to his people and his power and omnipotence, leverage for the sake of his people. The result is peace. Not striving or war, but peace. Peace which is experienced both now and which is promised in the future. Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christians have a real, present, and abiding peace with God, in which we were once enemies, but now made children through adoption. But also this peace would come in the age to come when the fullness and the consummation of that kingdom is established on earth, the rule and the reign of the Prince of Peace. David both delights in the peace he has in God as his refuge and anticipates the coming peace that his own descendant, which God had promised through covenant with him, would establish and rule forever. Remember, David looks to the future righteous king who would establish such a kingdom. So peace is at the heart of God's covenant and his promises to his people. Well, we've considered David's distress and Yahweh's deliverance. Next, let's consider the Lord's delight. Verses 20 through 29 says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him. I kept myself from guilt. And so the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless you show yourself blameless. With the purified you show yourself pure. And with the crooked you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I, cannot, I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. Consider the Lord's delight, which is in righteousness. Now the language, of course, of this, this part of Psalm 18 seems to ascribe righteousness to David, he says, my hands are clean. I have kept your ways. All your rules were before me. I was blameless. I kept myself from guilt. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands. So yes, it seems that righteousness is ascribed to David, but this is only a, a relative righteousness. A relative righteousness that pertains to the way that David has not broken God's commandments in the way that he has responded to Saul and to his other enemies. The righteousness that David actually espouses is produced by, in David by God's word. Notice what he says there in verse 22. All of his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. So David is not taking for himself the credit of salvation, but rather saying my righteousness and obedience to God's word has led me into the refuge and the deliverance of God. And he delights and the provision of deliverance for those who are righteous. It's produced in David by God's word. His commandments and his prohibitions, David submitted himself to. And he goes further, in tandem with David's relative righteousness, we get a clearer picture of God's own character. There in verse 25 and afterwards. God delights in righteousness and will therefore reward the righteous. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. But notice there in the second part of verse 26. God will also thwart and frustrate the ways of the wicked. It says, with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. The same word is there as crooked. Is God deceitful or crooked in himself? No. But he works against his enemies to thwart and frustrate the ways of the wicked. The Lord is shrewd and able and willing to work against his enemies 
and those set against righteousness. And so the reward for those that comfort themselves in his word and conform themselves to his word, it is salvation. It's deliverance. Verse 27, you save a humble people with the haughty eyes you bring down. That's the reward of the comfort for those who conform themselves to his word, salvation and deliverance. He goes on to say that the word sheds light on the moral darkness of our lives, directs us on the path of righteousness and purity. Verse 28 says, It is you who light my lamp, the Lord my God lightens my darkness. That is, the the light and the righteousness of Christ illuminates our path so that we may stay on the course of righteousness. Let me take just a few moments with a brief excursion and speak on Psalm 1. If you can, keep your, your finger there and go to Psalm 1. There, the beginning of the psalm, the book of Psalms, Psalm 1 stands as a way to interpret all others. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. For he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1 introduces and it reinforces the necessity of God's word for our righteousness. As David says that it never departed from me, what is always before me, he knows, like Psalm 1 teaches, that it is his word that is the path of righteousness itself. And that the righteous one would delight in the word, just as it says here. His delight, the righteous, the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it meditates day and night, would be like the stream, the tree planted by the streams of water. Because the righteous man would delight in the word. It's what it means to hold the word in front of us. This righteous man would meditate on the word day and night. It would be something that consumes him. This righteous man lives according to the word, which of course brings life. When his his delight is in the law of the Lord and on it he meditates day and night, he becomes in like a tree planted by streams of water that would yield fruit in its season, fruit of life and obedience and godliness and righteousness, not from within himself, but what the Lord produces through obedience and submission. Of course, for us, under the new covenant, we have the Spirit, who is our helper in such activities. And so the Lord's delight is in righteousness, in the righteous obedience and faithfulness of his people. Let's consider then, lastly, the enemy's destruction. Verses 30 through 50 explores the the promise of God that takes effect in the actual destruction of David's enemies. He says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me on secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend the bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise for they fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me, I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. For you delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. And as soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came clinging, cringing, cringing to me and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued the peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. 
For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Again, here David is evoking, once again, images from the Old Testament and from the Pentateuch. He's already evoked the images of Moses and the Exodus as God comes in judgment and covenant reality. Now he's drawing upon similarity to Joshua. The only two other men, by the way, in the Old Testament that are referred to as the servant of the Lord, a title David ascribes to himself in the title of this same psalm, a clue to why we see Moses and Joshua in the text. He's drawing on similarities with Joshua. Joshua, remember, led Israel into the conquest of Canaan to establish the land of promise. But the point here in all of David's victory is that it is the Lord who has fit David for battle. Even though we see intermingled in here in the text that it is David who does these things, he is clear that it is God who provided the outcome, and it is God who provided David the ability to do it. God, the Lord, has fit David for battle. It is God who raises him up as the conquering king over the nations, victorious over all nations. Because David has trusted in the Lord and has submitted himself to his word and to his ways, God gives David victory over his enemies. This is according to the promises of God. So two promises arise from this text that you should hold on to this morning. First, that God gives his people strength. He strengthens them for the battle. He strengthens and equips them to fight the war and the battles that they face. Again, he does not strengthen them to pull themselves up by the bootstraps or to find the strength within themselves, but he gives to them the strength. It is the Lord who fits David for battle. He is the one, he says in verse 33, who makes my, the, my feet like the feet of a deer and sets me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me. Your gentleness made me great. You see the Lord equipping David for victory and raising David up as a king over the nations. Ahead, it says in verse 33, of the nations. David trusts in the Lord because God gives his people strength. But second promise to comfort our, our distresses is this. God gives his people victory. He equips us not only with strength, but gives us such strength for victory. He indeed allows us to have victory over those distresses and sins. Ultimately, this is accomplished in Christ. In fact, look at verse 38. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise, for they fell under my feet. Behind the English here, there's the word crush or scatter, almost pulverize, under the feet of the king. This is a direct allusion to the promise of Genesis 3.15. When God promises to Eve that one of her seed would crush the head of the serpent who led them into temptation and sin. Though this, the head of the serpent would bruise the heel, it would be the heel of this one who would crush the head of the serpent. So in verse 38, there's an allusion to the promises of Genesis 3.15 to crush the head of the enemy who is at war with God and his people. It's that David, once again, anticipates the arrival of the day when all of his enemies are crushed and pulverized under the heel of the righteous king. He sees in some small way how God has delivered him because of the promises, but he looks forward to the day when the righteous king, which was promised from David's line, would rule and reign forever and fully vanquish all the enemies of God's people. These two promises give comfort that God gives strength and God gives victory to his people in Christ. We are strengthened with the knowledge that Christ has defeated sin, that in Christ we have victory over sin, and we are encouraged and emboldened by the presence of the Spirit to go and sin no more. And so in verses 46 through 50, we have just a, a summary and a conclusion, a doxology, really, of the whole psalm, where David brings all of the images and all of the themes together in concert. He recounts all that the Lord has done. And yet he still looks to the future that David anticipates. 
really the patterns here of the Lord's faithfulness and the deliverance in David's life. But not only in David's life, but in all of Israel's history. Think of Moses and the Exodus or Joshua and Canaan. All the patterns of the Lord's faithfulness and deliverance are fully and perfected, perfectly fulfilled in Christ. This is the promised heir of the throne to whom he refers in verse 50, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring, that is his seed forever. The promise of Genesis 3.15, the promise of 2 Samuel 7, that God will establish a kingdom and a king on a throne forever, David looks forward to. This is the enemy's destruction. Psalm 18, from the perspective then of Christ, as we mentioned earlier, makes clear that these promises of rescue and salvation come to God's people only, only and fully and perfectly by the hand of God's Son. It was Jesus who would be encompassed and ensnared by death, as David was. And yet he would not be spared death, like David was. Jesus' own deliverance was accompanied by signs from heaven as he hung on the cross. Darkness came over the land and an earthquake shook the world. Jesus' victories over his enemies solidified in his own resurrection from the grave. Jesus' rule and reign will continue on forever as he ascends on high and will come again to establish his kingdom. It is from the perspective of Christ, where Psalm 18 and the promises therein are truly comforting to God's people. Three concluding exhortations, briefly. One, set yourself about the work and way of righteousness, because God delights in it. Set yourself about the work and way of righteousness, because God delights in it. He has given you his word so that you would be conformed to the word of God. It is the path on which we must walk to have wisdom and righteousness. Be conformed to the word of God. Submit yourself to the will of God. As the Lord directs you, so you must step, so much you must walk in faith. The confidence we have in conquering sin is in the confidence that Christ's work is sufficient. And therefore, when the word tells us to walk, we walk by faith confident in the conquering power of Christ's death over sin and, and hell. Secondly, be exhorted that God has not abandoned you to death, but he has rescued you from it. Christ came and suffered death so that you would not be abandoned to it. You are rescued. Christ himself is your redeemer, and he is the refuge in the rock upon which you must stand. And no other place can refuge from the enemy be found. It is only in the death of Jesus are the true enemies of God's people, death and Satan, destroyed and defeated. And it is only in his full rule and reign will the kingdom of God be established and we are welcomed in. So be comforted by the fact that God has not abandoned you but has rescued you. And lastly, friends, we must rehearse the faithfulness of God over and over again in our lives like Psalm 18 does, rehearsing the faithfulness of God and delivering us from our enemies, ascribing to him all manner of praise and worship that flows from a heart of love and gratitude and affection for God. And we must do this firstly in private, that we must worship and praise and rehearse the faithfulness of God at the dinner table with our families and in the closet by ourselves, that we must pour over the word and give praise to God and rehearse his faithfulness in our lives over and over again in the many ways that he has delivered us from our enemies and even from our sin and ourselves. But we must do so also in public. That is part of the mandate of the church to gather together and worship. He says in verse 49, For all of this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing your name. The corporate worship of God is meant to be a sign to the world what God has done and of his faithfulness to us in Christ. And so if you do not worship and rehearse the faithfulness of God in private or in public, Friends, you are not worshiping God at all. We must turn our attention to Christ, who has become for us the true and righteous king, who brings us in, out from the hands of our enemies, and into the presence and the comfort of God. He has secured this through the blood that he has shed for us on the cross. 
and he confirms it in his resurrection from the grave. It is to these truths and to that reality of the covenant purposes of God for our good that we cling to as we pray in faithfulness to him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask that our hearts would continually meditate on and consider such truths that you have made a covenant with your people from Genesis to Adam and Eve to Moses and your people to David and his kingdom to us. A new covenant fulfilled in Christ, perfected in Christ, in which we have all of our refuge, safety, and promise of deliverance. May we walk in the confidence of such work. And may we cry out regularly to God on the basis of your promises, leveraging all of the good and mighty characteristics that you present in your word, your strength, your love, your wisdom, your righteousness, your knowledge, your care, leverage for our good because you have made a covenant with your people through Christ. Through the blood of Jesus, which draws us close to you, forgiving us of our sins by faith and equipping and securing us with confidence to face down our enemies, which you have mortally wounded, so that our lives may be made righteous for you. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. My rock and my All sermons are released under a Creative Commons Greatest treasure of my longing like soul. Or listen to past sermons. My God, like you, there is no other. True deal.